welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I'm going to apologize to everyone up front. I have got the crud, and so I'm going to do my best not to cough in your ear unexpectedly and get all scratchy voiced on you. But I promise to drink all the water and edit as much as I can. So, Today's episode is actually a listener suggestion. And I know I've said it before, but I'm going to say it to you again. I appreciate all of your suggestions and requests. And even if I haven't done yours yet, please stay patient because I will get to it. This one in particular really got my attention for several reasons. First, Because when I received the request, the picture of Sarah Ann Koshka just really, she's such a beautiful girl. And I know that sounds shallow, that the first thing was because she was so beautiful. But even in a candid snapshot, she has a real presence about her as she looks at the camera. And it's not really directly at the camera. She's kind of giving it a side glance. She's not smiling, but she doesn't look upset or angry either. She's a little mysterious. She's intriguing. And that alone made me want to know more about her. Especially when I found out she was only 15. So to have that kind of a presence already was very interesting to me. You know, most of us at 15, we don't know what we're doing. And I mean, I know I sure didn't. You don't even have a driver's license yet. You're trying to figure it all out. And she just, from that, those snapshots that I've seen of her, because it's like that in the other ones that I found online, she just already has such, she just, there's just something about her. It, it draws you in. Then I started reading about Sarah and what was happening in Fort Worth in 1984. That really sucked me in. Not only is Sarah's case unsolved to this day, it is linked to a string of unsolved murders from the early 1980s in Fort Worth, Texas. And many people believe that it's the work of a serial killer. So today we're going to focus on Sarah's story. But over the next few episodes, we will talk about all the murders and some thoughts on who the serial killer might be. Sarah was the fourth young woman to be murdered, but she was the first one to be found. It would take months, even years, for some of the women's remains to be found. The string of murders occurred between September and January within a six-mile radius of each other in the affluent area of southwest Fort Worth. The victimology of the women was all very similar. Now, if you aren't familiar with the term, it means the victim's age, gender, race, occupation, physical attractiveness, relationship status, and perceived vulnerability. And those are just a few of the things that investigators look at when they are looking at a victim's relationship to their offender. Sometimes there is an identifiable likeness in victims chosen by serial offenders, but sometimes there's not. And even then, when there's not, that lends a clue as of to who the offender might be. 
In the case of all the women who were murdered in Fort Worth, they were pretty similar. Like I said, they all had very similar physical characteristics, but also they didn't lead dangerous or risky lifestyles. They had regular jobs, stable relationships with their friends and family. It was going to be noticed fairly quickly that something was wrong and these women weren't around. You know, a lot of times we see uh, where serial killers target sex workers or homeless people or other types of dangerous jobs or lifestyles because these individuals do tend to not be a steady presence. It might be a few days, maybe sometimes even weeks before people see them again. So they're in and out and it's easier for that time. If you are someone who is planning to commit a crime, especially against somebody, that does lend itself to your advantage because people aren't going to immediately be looking for that person because of their lifestyle. But these women were not like that. They were missed immediately, which also made it that more shocking and hard to believe that there wasn't a trace of evidence to help figure out who was doing this. So we're going to go a little bit out of order of the events on the timeline. But I promise that I will circle back around to the beginning so that you get all the details and it will come together. So I'm going to start with a little background about what was going on in the area. And then I'm going to tell you about women that started going missing as early as 1983 in Fort Worth. It had gotten so bad that patrol officers were told that they must stop to help if they saw a woman alone on the side of the road. It did not matter what type of call they were headed to, they were required to stop and check on any woman. So women were going missing left and right. Some of them were being abducted. Some of them were being murdered. Others were being sexually assaulted. But it was so bad that all patrol officers were told, you have to stop. You have to check. It doesn't matter. The police do not believe all of the murders and abductions at that time were connected. But in hindsight, they do believe there was possibly six active serial killers in Fort Worth at that time. Which is a really scary thought all on its own. The population of Fort Worth in the early 80s was around 500,000. It wasn't small by any means, but it wasn't the sprawling metroplex that it is today. So think about that. 500,000 people and six of them were probably serial killers. That's scary. By the time Sarah was murdered, the Fort Worth Police Department had assembled a task force of 35 officers to focus on the murders and abductions of these women and they asked the FBI to help assist them in building a profile as of to who their killer might be. So they weren't sitting around. It wasn't like these police officers were blown it off thinking nothing was connected, ignoring what was going on. You know, you hear that a lot of times. Oh, they ran off. Oh, this is a one-off deal. They were really actively trying to solve things, but there was nothing to help them out. All the women were young 
and attractive with similar physical characteristics. They were in their early 20s, except for Sarah, who was only 15. But Sarah looked older than her age, so it would be easy to see her and think that she was 19 or 20. Remember, I told you, even from her photographs, she just had a presence about her. She doesn't look like a 15-year-old. Police were taking these women's murders and disappearances very seriously, but it was 1984. They didn't have all the scientific advancements that we do today. They could match fingerprints, tire tracks, or bullets if any of those things were left at the scene, but there was no DNA testing yet. The first use of DNA to solve a crime wouldn't even come into play until 1987 in England. Things that they might have used to test for DNA weren't often saved because they just didn't know any better at the time. This meant that old-fashioned police work and hopefully an eyewitness were your best bets at that time. Sarah and her mother, Maisie Koshka, moved to Fort Worth in 1983 from Prairie Village, Missouri. Her mother taught nursing at the University of Kansas Medical Center before they moved to Texas when Maisie got a job in Denton at Texas Women's College. Denton is about 40 minutes north of Fort Worth. Sarah was a good student. She loved animals. She loved to go horseback riding when she would go back to Kansas to visit her grandparents. And she had two older brothers, and she was very friendly and outgoing. Because of these two older brothers, her mother says that she thought she could handle herself and take care of things. Sarah's friends would call her to ask for advice on things, and they said that she was an old soul and was mature for her age. They said that whenever you talked to Sarah, you got the impression that she was very confident and that she did kind of know who she was already. When Maisie Koshka started working on her doctorate degree in nursing, Maisie and Sarah moved to Denton in June of 1984 so that she could be closer to Texas Women's College. Sarah had made friends in Denton, but as you can imagine, she missed her friends from Fort Worth. She was a freshman in high school, and that would be a really tough time to make a move like that. So on the weekend of December 30th, 1984, Sarah's mother drove her down to Fort Worth to stay with her best friend, Devin Embry, for the weekend. The girls had big plans. They were going to go to a party at a friend's house with their dates and then spend the rest of the weekend hanging out together. But as they got ready to go out that night, fixing their hair, putting on makeup, figuring out their outfits, their plans changed. The two girls decided that they were not going to go to the party. Instead, they would go out with their dates separately, but then meet back up at 1 a.m. before they headed back over to Devin's house. Well, both couples left Devin's house around 9 p.m., and they went their separate ways. After they had already left the house, Sarah's date told her that he was not able to stay out until one o'clock, like everybody else. So they went ahead and they went out to dinner and they came back and it was still late. You know, they had left the house at 9 p.m. and they'd taken the time to eat dinner, but Sarah still had time to kill before she was supposed to meet back up with Devin at 1 a.m. 
And I want you to stop and remember, it's 1984. There are no cell phones. If you wanted to call somebody, you either had to go to someone's house or find a payphone at a gas station to make a call. And here's another problem. Sarah doesn't know where her friend Devin and her date are. So it's not like she could call and say, hey, plans have changed. Come meet me. My date has to go home early. At that time, if you didn't know where the person was, you just had to wait around until they got home or got to the place that you were supposed to see them next. It was such a different time then. If you didn't live in the 80s and 90s, it's hard to imagine what that was like. We're so connected now in so many ways. I mean, besides the fact that you have a cell phone right there with you at all times, if someone doesn't answer their phone, you can look on their social media. They might have posted about where they are or what they're doing. Or you can even check in on apps like Life360 or other tracking apps to find someone. I know like my daughter and her friends, they're all hooked up. They can look and see where each other are all the time, which in a lot of ways is really great. You know, someone can see you. I mean, I, we have her where we can see her on our phones from her phone, but it wasn't like that back then. If you weren't together, no one really knew where you were. That's just how it was. And it was just a fact of life. I mean, none of these things existed at that time. So Sarah really was kind of in the wind for a few hours. Devin didn't know that her date had to go home early. They didn't discuss it before they parted ways. And so here she is figuring out what to do. It's after 10 o'clock at night. It's dark. Uh, it's December. So it's winter time. And She's left to her own devices, you know? So, um, and it would be hours before anyone started worrying about her, you know? So Sarah asked her date to drop her off at the Wedgwood Terrace apartment complex. The apartment complex was only about 200 yards from Devin's house. It's an easy walking distance so that she can meet back up with Devin at their arranged time a little later. Sarah had friends that lived at the apartment complex And she told her date that this would give her time to catch up with them while she was in town. Her date dropped her off at the friend's apartment, but he didn't wait to see if anyone was at home before he drove away. Being a teenager, I'm sure the last thing on his mind was the fact that his date might not make it in the apartment and something might happen to her. You know, he was probably worried about getting home on time for his curfew. So I'm sure it never crossed his mind that in a million years, that would be the last time anyone saw Sarah. Well, unfortunately, no one was home at the apartment. So here we are. Now it's late at night. Sarah has nowhere to go for a few hours, like I just said. She has several options right around her, though. The apartment complex sits up on a small hill. There's a bowling alley behind her a Dairy Queen to the right, right down the hill, and the Wedgwood Shopping Center is also right down the hill. In this shopping center, there's a place called Mama's Pizza with video games and things like that. That is a very friendly hangout for teenagers. And then there's also 
Sarah is also just a block away from the gas station where Angie Ewart, another woman, went missing three weeks before. But she probably doesn't even know that. She probably wasn't even aware that women were going missing and being abducted in the area. She's a teenager. She probably doesn't pay any attention to the news and she hasn't been living in the area for about six months now. Plus, going back to the whole 1980s thing, if you didn't read the newspaper or actually turn into the news on TV, you didn't know what was happening in the world around you. Those were your two information sources. Like I said, people weren't hopping on social media and seeing what was going on. If you weren't reading or tuning in, you didn't know. Witnesses reported seeing Sarah walking down the hill in the direction of the Dairy Queen, but no one can confirm if she made it there or to any of the other businesses close by. It is believed that her killer must have made contact with her before she made it wherever she had decided to go. Devin made it back to her house at the appointed time, but Sarah never came home. She waited up for her all night, but there was no Sarah. Early the next morning, Devin's mother called Maisie Koshka to tell her that Sarah did not come home last night. I can't imagine having to make that call or to receive a call like that. First of all, here you are, another parent, and you have to call to say that on your watch, someone else's child didn't come back home and you don't know where they are. But also, now you're a parent who's receiving this phone call. And no one knows where your child is. I can't imagine. Well, Maisie immediately called the Fort Worth Police Department to report Sarah missing. And they didn't waste any time. The police came out and started interviewing friends and knocking on doors in the neighborhood. But no one had any information about where Sarah might be. No one had seen her. Later that afternoon, New Year's Day of 1985, the temperature started to drop. And it started to sleet and ice covered all the roads. And if you know anything about us people in Texas, we don't do ice. So it, people were shut down. The weather was nasty. No one had expected the weather to make such a drastic turn because it had been very mild before. In fact, the high had been 70 degrees the day before. Well, 25 miles away on the outskirts of Dallas, two teenage boys were out messing around in a secluded wooded area shooting a pellet gun. They found Sarah Ann Koshka lying down in a creek. She was face down, fully clothed, and she'd been stabbed multiple times. So she was, like I said, the first person to be found of the first woman to be found in this string of murders. And um, it was surprising because she'd only been missing about 38 hours. It wasn't, it wasn't very long before they found her. But even then, with the freeze, they weren't able to do a lot of looking. Everything was frozen over. Like I said, we don't operate well here in Texas because, well, we don't have a lot of ice, you know? So Sarah had, been, had gone missing in Fort Worth. So she wasn't even on the Dallas PD's radar at that time. They labeled her as a Jane Doe in her early 20s. But the Dallas medical examiner quickly matched Sarah to her missing persons report. 
And that is when Maisie Koshka got the terrible news that her daughter had been murdered. Well, it took another two days before the police were able to start searching the area for clues. It was Tuesday, January 3rd. Mounted Dallas police and the Fort Worth police helicopter aided Dallas and Fort Worth investigators in the search. And it's unusual for two different police departments to work together like this. But since Sarah went missing in Fort Worth and she was found in Dallas, both departments at first worked the case together. But investigators weren't able to find much to point them toward a suspect or even in a direction of how Sarah got there. There just really wasn't much there. When investigators spoke to Sarah's friends, they told them that Sarah was smart. And not just book smart, street smart also. They didn't think that she would have willingly just got in the car with someone that she didn't know. They figured that either it was someone that she was familiar with or someone that she knew. Or that person overpowered her and forced her to go with them. Some rumors also floated around that she could have been the victim of a satanic cult, but it was the 80s and satanic panic was everywhere. That was soon put to rest. It was just another wild theory. The Still podcast, which is really good, what I stumbled on it while I was reading about Sarah, and it's called Still dot dot dot. It has looked at Sarah's case and the other missing women. It's really good, and I really recommend it if you want to really go more in-depth. They interviewed a lot of people that knew Sarah and the other victims, and they spoke with Devin Embry's brother about the time when Sarah was murdered. Unfortunately, Devin died of cancer a few years ago, so they weren't able to speak with her, but Devin's brother, TJ, said that he was only 11 at the time of Sarah's murder. And so his family really sheltered him from it a lot. But, you know, he caught, he's 11. He caught snippets of what was going on. He heard them talking. And he does remember how his sister handled it. He said that she went into a major depression. And that she stayed in her room and hardly ever left the house. She quit all of her extracurricular activities and she gained about 200 pounds. She had been very active in soccer and other things at school, and he said she just shut everything out. She didn't want to leave. It was just like people were too much for her. She couldn't cope with being around people. And he said that he believes that Devin blamed herself for what happened to Sarah and that she really never recovered from it. Maisie Koshka said that for a very long time, Sarah's murder was the first thing that she thought of when she woke up in the morning and the last thing she thought of before she fell asleep at night. She did say, however, that she has found some peace over the years and that time does help. Sarah's case is still listed on the Fort Worth's cold case website and still considered an active open case. She would have been in her early 50s today. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you enjoyed Sarah's story. And, you know, if anybody out there has any information or thinks they know something about it, 
call the Fort Worth Crime Stoppers. It's 817-469-TIPS or 817-469-8477. You can even text TIP117 plus your message to 274637. So, you know, you never know. Maybe someone out there know something, remember seeing something. If you do, call it in. Any little thing might help. I appreciate everyone listening today. I'd love to hear your thoughts and I will continue the story and give you guys some more information on all the other women that were also murdered at this time. So I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can uh, find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. You can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And I hope you all have a great week and I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>